1: It hadn't really hit me that when the song was over, so was the band. Levon Helm later remembered as the band stumbled from the Winterland stage at 3 a.m. following one of the biggest shows of their lives. As they entered the dressing room, they found envelopes addressed to each member. Inside was three thousand dollars cash. Bill Graham was so pleased with the showing that he had given bonuses to each member. They then migrated over to the Miyaki Hotel to continue the party. As Helm later remembered, it was a fun time. Dr. John and Paul Butterfield were there jamming with Stephen Stills, and Helm himself was chatting with actor Brad Dourif, who had had success in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Bob Dylan was chatting with friends from Minnesota and telling reporters that he was already nostalgic for the band. Their friend and original producer John Simon was also present, informing the group that Dylan's team had seized the tapes that Dylan was on following the show. The fun and games of post-production on The Last Waltz hadn't even begun. As Levon returned to his hotel room and his partner and stepson lay asleep, he looked at the San Francisco sunrise, pondering what had just occurred, what his life had culminated to over the past decade. He later summarized, quote, The original idea, as I recall it, had been for us to use Bearville Studio as a sheltered environment for making American music, using all the traditions we had learned over the years. That dream died amid the old divide and conquer mentality. My only hope was that it wasn't too late to live that dream and somehow keep the people who love the band on our side. The band was in a weird spot, not technically broken up, but with little direction and general disinterest in working together. Each member began to work on various projects, as if the band they had put over a decade into didn't exist anymore. They'd rather neglect the elephant in the room than rather fully deal with the band politics. Islands, their last studio effort for Capitol Records, was still being worked on, however. As Levon later remembered, It was really more of a collaboration of odd pieces than an album, but it did fulfill those awful contractual obligations. Levon was more interested in working on his new solo deal with his old friend Henry Glover, who had set it up with ABC Records. Glover was putting together an all-star cast of musicians for an album and tour that was on the horizon. Meanwhile, Rick Danko was working at Shangri-La on his first solo outing for Arista Records. He was using a lot of local friends from Eric Clapton to Blondie Chaplin and Ron Wood, Emmett Grogan, and Bobby Charles. Robbie was working on what was happening to The Last Waltz. It started with English mogul Sir Lou Grade making a $3 million offer to buy the film of The Last Waltz. According to Helm, when they filmed, there wasn't really a plan for the movie. He later dubbed it the most expensive home movie ever made. But Robertson and Scorsese had bigger aspirations. They had shot over 160,000 feet of film, and they wanted to use it. As rumors of the film started to mount in the public, the pressure was put on. It was going to be a mammoth undertaking. The soundtrack was poorly recorded, and it was estimated that several hours of overdubbing was needed on top of a full remix and remaster. Nonetheless, Warner Brothers was coaxed by Robertson, Scorsese, and producer Jonathan Taplin to fork over an additional cash influx to continue filming. Combing through the footage revealed that there were some gaps that they would need to fill, from adding interview content to filming more musical guests. Helm claimed that this was partially because the producers deemed the final cut of the film was too, quote, "...lily white in missing something crucial." something that the addition of the staple singers was meant to remedy. Additionally, several important songs from the Thanksgiving performance sounded subpar. Helm felt that his singing on the wait was, quote, less than magical, and the Robertson-written Evangeline had been thrown together mere hours before the show, resulting in a haphazard live performance. Thus, The Last Waltz Suite was born. The Staple Singers featured Roebuck, Pops, his daughters, Cleotha, Yvonne, and Mavis. Originally from Mississippi, Pops moved the family to Chicago while he was working in the steel mills as they grew up. And in the late 50s, Pops along with his daughters started performing in churches. Their first public singing appearance was at the Mount Zion Church in Chicago, where Roebuck's brother, the Reverend Chester Staples, was pastor. They signed their first professional contract in 1952. During their early years, they recorded in an acoustic gospel folk style with various labels. United Records, VJ Records, Checker Records, Riverside Records, and then in 1965, Epic Records. Their hit Uncloudy Day was an early influence on Bob Dylan, who later mused, quote, It was one of the most mysterious things I'd ever heard. I'd think about them even at my school desk. Mavis looked to be about the same age as me in her picture. Her singing just knocked me out. And Mavis was a great singer. Deep. Mysterious. And even at the young age, I felt that life itself was a mystery. Whoa,
0: what They tell me What?
1: The Staples' move to Epic led to a run of albums, including the live-in-church Freedom Highway, produced by Billy Sherell, the title track of which was a civil rights movement protest song penned by Pop Staples. It was on Epic that the Staples developed a style more accessible to the mainstream audiences. However, it wasn't long before they were on the move again, this time to Stax Records, where Steve Cropper produced their next set of records, which involved a style change to more funk rhythms. The Staple Singers even covered the weight during that period with Stax, which became Robbie Robertson's favorite version of the song. All in all, through the various labels and sounds, the Staple Singers remained innovative and ever-talented. It was without a question that the band went to them and invited them to join them for their additional shoots. The Staples and the band arrived at the cavernous MGM soundstage, which featured a very large stage, multiple large colorful lights that were cued depending on the camera angle, and an ample amount of dry ice that was used to create atmosphere. Robertson later remembered that Scorsese and cinematographer Michael Chapman got into a massive argument around the mood and the lighting for The Weight. "Marty was insisting that it was a very Catholic vision. It had to be. And Michael was saying, no, this is a very Protestant story. It's Baptist, Marty." He was trying to explain to Marty the gospel music connotations. With the dust settled around the setup and the religious connotations and how they were reflected in the song, they were finally ready to film. They were lined up on stage left during the performance and played a significant part in this new version of the wait. Mavis remembers that the shoot went well. Quote, the excitement of being with our friends, Levon and Danko, and those guys were such good friends of ours. To be singing with them and knowing that this was going to be on the big screen, the silver screen, it was just a moment in time for me.
0: I picked up my bags and went looking for a place to hide When I saw old Carmen and the devil walking side by side And I said, here Come on, let's go downtown She said, I gotta go But my friend can stick around
1: The band was enjoying themselves too. Levon marveled at Mavis's voice, which he later mused could have been better than Aretha Franklin's. And Richard Manuel and Pops got on well. And according to Helm, during one of the filming breaks, Manuel approached Pops and asked him if he knew why French people went to Canada and that black people went to America. Pops said no, he didn't. Richard told him it was because Canada and America had a bet and Canada lost. On the performance, perhaps one of the best moments is when Mavis completely takes over at the end of the song with such vigor and energy. She was really a showstopper, and collectively, all the singers holding harmonies at the end, which bring the spectacular version of The Wait to a close. Overall, the wait featuring the Staple singers remains one of the most defining moments of the last waltz. And how could it not? The song was directly inspired by the Staples music. You can draw the musical lineage to them in such a direct way that some nearly 10 years later you have the band and the Staples together performing the song and something magical is bound to happen. And next in a series of additional shoots on the MGM soundstage included Robertson's newly penned tune, Evangeline, a song in the country gospel tradition. The band had tried it during the concert half-heartedly, but without much time to rehearse. It was subpar with the guys reading off of cue cards to get the lyrics. With a new refocus on the soundstage, and to fill in the gaps, it was determined that country music needed to be better represented in the film, as it was one of the main tenets of inspiration for the band's sound, especially Danko, who had an affinity for country tunes as a child, from Hank Williams to Hank Snow. They enlisted Emmy Lou Harris to duet the song, who was truly coming into her own, and was one of the hottest names in music. Now, Harris was born in 1947 in Birmingham, Alabama, to military parents. She often moved, spending most of her childhood in North Carolina and Virginia. Always bright in school, Harris graduated valedictorian Victorian and won a drama scholarship to the School of Music, Theater, and Dance at the University of North Carolina, where she began to study music and learn the songs of Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez on guitar. She soon dropped out of college to pursue her musical aspirations and moved to New York City, working as a waitress to support herself while performing folk songs in Greenwich Village coffeehouses during the 1960s folk music boom. There she married songwriter Tom Slocum, who in 1969 recorded her first album, Gliding Bird. But not long after the pair divorced and Harris and her newly born daughter Haley moved in with her parents in Clarksville, Maryland. In 1971, members of the country rock group the Flying Burrito Brothers saw her perform. Former Birds member Chris Hillman had taken over the band and was impressed by Harris and briefly considered asking her to join the Burrito Brothers. Instead, Hillman recommended her to Graham Parsons, who was looking for a female vocalist to collaborate with on his first solo album, G.P., Paris Afoki wasn't sure about singing country music, but she relented and toured as a member of Parsons' band The Fallen Angels in 1973, and the pair shone during vocal harmonies and duets. Later that year, Parsons and Harris worked on a studio album, Grievous Angel. Parsons died in his motel room near what is now Joshua Tree National Park in September of 1973 from an accidental overdose of drugs and alcohol. Parsons' Grievous Angel was released posthumous in 1974. Soon after Parsons' death, Harris was signed to Warner Brothers by A&R representative Mary Martin. With her stock rising as a soloist and putting out some great guest work with Linda Ronstadt, Guy Clark, Neil Young, and Bob Dylan, the band thought she would fit the bill for what they were trying to achieve with Evangeline. And now back on the MGM soundstage, it was filled with dry ice to set a very specific mood as the band and their guests broke into Evangeline. As writer Nick DiRizio later stated, there could have been no more perfect moment for Emmylou Harris timeless lonesome sound to intertwine with Rick Danko and Levon Helms. Lyrically, Evangeline tells the story of a riverboat settling at the bottom of the Missouri River, or nicknamed a Big Muddy. Harris played the role of Evangeline, the grieving lover, watching from high atop a river ridge as the sinking Mississippi Queen sinks into the depths of the river with her lover, a gambler named Bayou Sam, aboard. Next, lyrically, the song works as a commentary on the American South and what it has become, quite suddenly with the passage about lightning surrounding her head like a halo, but all she can do is watch in frail disbelief. Musically, you find Levon Helm on mandolin, Danka on the fretless bass and later on the overdub fiddle and Garth Hudson on his ornate accordion, while Richard Manuel provides a loose and smooth backbeat on the drums. Danko takes the first verse, somewhat of a third-party narrator, doing his best sad and sorrow-filled like his childhood idol Hank Williams, before Harris, the lover, offers her clear angelic cry. Helm comes in acting as Bayou Sam, later slated by critics as his contributions to Evangeline arrived with the finality that closes like a cold hand around your heart. finest late original era songs from the band. The combination of vocals, lyrics and the musical arrangement lends itself neatly to their first two efforts. Speckled with real places, almost documentary-like storytelling in a group of men and one woman who really gave it all to a tune. MGM Soundstage Editions, which were added late, included several numbers that were not present in the film, but present on the soundtrack release. The first of those is The Well. Opening the sixth side of the eventual soundtrack album, many consider the song a throwaway. That attitude has led to The Well to become a completely underappreciated song. The Well is one of the finest late additions to the band and one of the best that Richard Manuel ever gave. First are the lyrics that are brooding and sexual. There is a mystery. We are placed in an exotic setting, given to us by the musical arrangement, something akin to the Eagles Hotel California. We follow the narrator as he views and then follows a mysterious woman fetching water from a well. Upon following her back to her dwelling, she invites the narrator in with a lyrical flourish insinuating a sexual transaction of some kind. And the lyrics indicate this with the passage, she killed the light, she dropped her glove. She said, are you looking for trouble or are you looking for love, love, love? Richard gives a phenomenal vocal performance here. And as writer Jimmy Nelson notes in his article on the well, quote, braying with carnal gusto before releasing into a sweetly hurtful verse that conveys every bit of his tender sensibility with the lyric. with the whole sequence is quite layered. Robertson, whom by this point had no shame when projecting his guitar hero antics, is all over the track, hammering his trusty arpeggios and using a wide range of studio effects. Garth Hudson extends his work from Northern Lights, Southern Cross, really using every tool at his disposal with the keyboard. And the horns are present, something that adds greatly to the sleaze and drama of the overall song. Is simplistic but powerful. Manuel is backed by Danko, but Richard really pulls the ripcord and lets it go before a complex musical break led by Robertson on guitar, and bursting at the seams with drums, bass, keyboard, and horns. He And with great contributions from every member of the band, this is truly a great manual spotlight, especially given his exclusion from the film. Writer Jimmy Nelson surmises it best with, quote, This is Richard Manuel's song, with a vocal that is as rough and as unvarnished as anything he did in the waning days of the band's five-man era so often simply sad and sweet during this time of disillusion, one which Manuel referred himself to as his Beige period. The well finds him in a much different place, for this moment he sounds whole again, entirely present, a world away from a fading figure whose muse had vanished. And while having more time in the studio than originally anticipated, The Last Waltz Suite expanded. Out of the Blue is one of the numbers that spawned from such time, one of only three songs that feature Robbie Robertson as the lead vocalist on a track from the band. Its uneven result provides an interesting path, though, for the group. Robertson isn't much of a singer and probably never felt the need to provide vocals with three excellent singers who defined an era. Why did Robbie Robertson sing on Out of the Blue? Perhaps, maybe no one showed up to the sessions to track vocals? It feels like a potentially great number for a Danko vocal, in theory, or maybe Robertson wanted to do it on his own, one last time before he called it quits. Regardless, it's quite bizarre. Not entirely confident, Robertson hides behind effects that he pours quite generously over the vocal. Very poppy in its final product.
0: Out of this world Out of this mind Out of this love For you Out of this world Out of the blue Out of this love
1: Musically and lyrically the song is quite simple as well, Robertson seems to be attempting to paint the picture of someone who will always return to his love even when he isn't present with the lyrics like, When I walk out that door she knows, she knows I'll be coming back for more. It's quite possible that the lyrics reflect Robertson's domestic life, his wife Dominique had had spent time without him often with their children when he was on the road, and the relationship began to break down. So far as Dominique kicking Robertson out and taking up with Scorsese at his Mulholland drive home, where they lived the wildlife of true Hollywood bachelors, as Levon later called them, blow buddies.
0: It's in the it's a written in the stars. it's in the wee wee hours, in some phone. And she don't step all night and walk the floor. Cuz well. I'll for more.
1: Musically, as mentioned, it is kept quite simple, with an arrangement akin to a soul record from Sam Cooke or Otis Redding. Collectively, this song is interesting despite its faults. The experimentation on the vocals and the studio magic that Garth heaps on are a peek inside where the band may have gone in the late 70s and into the early 80s. The final part of The Last Waltz Suite is The Last Waltz Refrain, featuring a rare duet between Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel, something that hasn't really been featured since the pair shared lead vocals on music from Big Pink's To Kingdom Come. The refrain is quite simple and effective. To define the refrain, it comes from the Latin word to repeat, and is a line or lines that are repeated in music or in poetry it is also referred to in most popular music as a chorus. The refrain or chorus may contrast with the verse melodically, rhythmically, and harmonically. It also may assume a higher level of dynamics and activity, which is what we see in the last waltz refrain, taking from the last waltz theme, with the addition of adding vocal lines. It's a last
0: waltz. The last waltz with you. Dance is over. It's the last waltz. The last waltz was through, but that don't mean that the party's over.
1: While simple, it displays the vocal capabilities of both singers quite well especially Robertson, who isn't trying to hide now behind any effects or other voices. The pairs harmonizing in the latter part of the song is also new and interesting. Thematically, it's quite simple, preaching of the last waltz being through. The song acts as that final note both figuratively and literally. The story has come to a close and the last waltz refrain ends the eventual album. And with the completion of the last waltz suite and the work on the MGM soundstage, it would be the final time the original lineup would play as a group in an official capacity. While there may have been tension and animosity amongst the members, they temporarily put that aside when creating their music one final time. Whether it be their stunning collaborations with guests, the Staple Singers and Lou Harris, or their final studio tracks that are all interesting, experimental, and one-of-a-kind, it truly begs the question why the band couldn't put aside their own self-interest for the sake of the group. Regardless, the post-production process continued to trudge along. Now came a period of difficulty and further infighting, issues over dubbing the film footage, the film's release and embarrassment for some members all plagued The Last Waltz. Thank you everybody for listening to The Band of History and our multi-part Last Waltz episode. This series continues to expand past what I even thought um, or imagined would be the case— Uh, I think we're on part four now. Uh, Part five is underway. And who knows, there might be part six. Regardless, I'm really trying to take my time. I put out a tweet a few weeks ago saying, you know, I'm not really feeling bad about this being kind of so unorganized, because really, when it comes to writing this, I'm trying to get every piece of information that would be interesting to listeners of the show. So I hope you uh, continue to stick with me as I put the show together here and uh, really dig into the last waltz and all of its complications. Um, I'd also like to say, you know, this is the first episode of 2022. This is going to be a great year for the show. Uh, the community has grown a lot, so thank you for that. 2021 was a good year in many ways for the band of history. Uh, in 2022, I brought on two wonderful people to help round out the team and help me kind of create the show. We've got somebody coming in to research and write and we've also got somebody to edit the show and post production as well. I will introduce you to both those people in uh in time to come. So, yeah, that's that's the show this week. Uh if you want to come and follow us online and join the conversation online, we're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all at the band podcast. Or if you're interested in supporting the show and giving monetarily uh, to you know help produce the show, website hosting, buy me a new mic so we sound really good here, uh, you can do that at Patreon.com/slash/TheBandAHistory. There's multiple tiers and you get a bunch of additional content there as well. So definitely come and check it out. But uh, yeah, this is The Band A History first episode of 2022, and uh, we're really looking forward to bringing you more content. So uh, we'll see you soon.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football